Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 141 of the Headspace and Tommy podcast. Today, I have a conversation with a clinical mental health professional, retired Army Colonel Kathy Platoni. She served as an Army psychologist for over three decades and continues this work in her post-military life. She and I talk about healing from trauma of all kinds and continuing to help our service members, veterans, and their families find a place of healing and peace. This was about 47 or 48 years ago. One of my, and this is, this is what makes military people tick. Um, I received a, an embroidered cloth and said on it, be ashamed to die until you have done something for humanity. And I think that's, that's a common thread that, that runs through military personnel. When, when you're out of the military, what else are you going to do that rises to that level uh, of satisfaction and reward or value, meaning, and purpose? Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Um, I, I'm Really pleased to be able to bring on today's guest. Uh, she and I have been corresponding for uh, quite a while now, trying to work our various schedules out. She is a very, very busy lady, um, unfortunately, in our line of work, um, but also um, helping a lot of people and supporting a lot of individuals. My guest today is Dr. Kathy Platoni, and she is a uh, former active duty uh, army psychologist. She served in four separate combat zones and has done a lot of work and now continues even after 38 years um, as a, a clinical mental health counselor, still serving in her community in Ohio. So Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, I wanted to clarify, um, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and I've deployed to the combat zone three times. One of my deployments was stateside, but I'm right. actually still in the military as Guantanamo. part of uh, state defense. Yes, 
uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Gitmo, and uh, then Gulf War. Actually, and I was looking, you and I might have um, uh, not quite crossed paths. You were at Camp Phoenix uh, in uh, 10, 9 and 10, and I was at Camp Phoenix um, 11 and 12. So I got there in like January of 2011. So, wow. Yeah, small, small military. Wow. We just missed each other. So, and, and you've done a, a lot of great work. Um, and, and obviously you are a nationally recognized expert on PTSD and war trauma and trauma in general. Uh, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I'm an old soldier. I'm still serving in the Ohio Military Reserve, which is part of the Ohio Army National Guard. I just love being in uniform. It's something that's been with me for most of my life and and very hard to let go of that. So I've just been extended for another year. Um, I joined the military in 1979, believe it or not, uh, because they offered me a scholarship to obtained my doctoral degree in clinical psychology, and I thought, okay, I'll give them four years. So that was 35 years ago. So <laughs> you've got to love it. Um, I started out working um, with um, the MRDD community in uh, South Florida. And as soon as I joined the military and finished my doctorate, um, I found out that soldiers and Marines and Air Force personnel were well, that's where my heart took me, and I continue to do that in dealing with multiple veterans uh, as a VA non-certified provider, and um, I also cover police departments, 15 of them, in fact, because PTSD among first responders, many of them veterans themselves, is rampant. Um, in, in the process of coming back from my last deployment, which was 0910, um, I also um, w- a co-wrote two books with my colleague who is world-renowned, Dr. Ray Scurfield, one on war trauma and one on um, healing approaches to war trauma. So look under Scurfield and Platoni and you'll, you'll find our books. They are textbooks. They're not light reading, but they are overloaded with excellent information. Um, okay, enough plugging our, our books. Um, I deal with trauma in in vast ways in in the first responder community, whether that be dispatchers, firefighters, paramedics, EMS, and police officers, as well as veterans. And I'm allied with multiple uh, veteran nonprofit organizations um, to provide whatever support, guidance, speeches, whatever they need. I, I have never really been good with the word no. So I take on, I've got eight different jobs. I get paid for one of them, but I love what I do. I'm very blessed. I love to come to work every day because I, I, I never know what adrenaline rich state I'm going to end up in dealing with what lies before me. It's kind of an exciting thing. Or, or, or an adrenaline depleted state after going through the roller coaster. <laughs> well, yeah, of, after, of yeah. yeah, after after about twenty hundred hours, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so and it, and it yeah, is always yeah. interesting to me, especially talking to clinicians who um, at the beginning of your career, I mean, literally at the beginning of your career, when you first started to, to go in, um, PTSD wasn't even a diagnosis, of course. Um, Not even know, a diagnosis. Right. And then how it's changed. Yes. And now we, we understand 
that it's a psychological injury because it actually changes the way your brain processes information. It's not a mental illness. It's not a mental defect or weakness. It's not even a, a, a mental health diagnosis, although that is how, how we treat it so that it's, it's paid for in terms of obtaining treatment, but it actually is, and I'm sure you know this better than anybody, it's a psychological injury from exposure to whether that's cumulative trauma or, or discrete incidents. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and, and we've uh, talked about it on the show here before. I mean, it, there actually is a physical change in the structures of the brain. I explained it to my veterans. Uh, you got a blank piece of paper and then you see what you see or what happens to you happens to you and sort of the paper gets crumpled up. Well, the treatment can sort of smooth the paper out. It can, you know, maybe we can steam it and we can make it. It's not going to go all the way back to the way that it was, but it also doesn't have to also doesn't have to stay in this sort of um, crumpled up state the entire time, too. No, it does not. There are so many ways to begin the healing process, not that there's not necessarily a cure for PTSD, but learning how to navigate life and to not be afraid to confront your trauma when the time is right and to do it in a safe and protected environment can allow people to lead wonderful lives, to rise to the challenge and to grow from the tragedies that have befallen them. Yeah, and and that's something. Obviously, this uh, this is the fact that it's it's not a debilitating uh, condition that needs to you know uh, render service members you know totally incapacitated. And, and you'd mentioned before we started, that in, and obviously when we talk about PTSD, when you as a psychologist, I as a mental health professional, we talk about PTSD and veterans. Everybody automatically goes to that idea of combat, right? You know, must have been in a firefight or the, the IEDs and things like that. Um, but your work, and you mentioned that you, you um, do a lot with local law enforcement. Um, uh, one of the things that is a, a precursor, a condition that often causes people to develop post-traumatic stress disorder that isn't often talked about is natural disasters. And that's what you're kind of working on right now. Absolutely. The area of Southwest Ohio in, in which I now live was hit by 16 separate tornadoes on the evening of Memorial Day. And these tornadoes ranged in intensity from EF0 to EF4. So large pockets of multiple towns and cities in the Miami Valley of Ohio have been devastated and decimated. Um, And we're, we're just even now starting to assess the magnitude and severity of the damages. It's, it's pretty heartbreaking. So as a member of uh, the Red Cross Disaster Mental Health Team, um, I was out there Saturday at one of the shelters dealing with some, some of the victims of the storm who had lost everything and, and ran from their homes with their, just their, the clothes they had on. So the trauma, the people are afraid to sleep because they're afraid that another tornado is going to come through in the middle of the night and steal their, their very lives away. There, there's also a, a lot of physical injuries and orthopedic injuries and bruises and lacerations. I mean, it, it took an enormous toll with multiple communities affected. Um, boil advisories, no water, no power for a week now in, in many locations. So it doesn't have to be combat. Any critical incident that's outside the realm of the normal human experience and is catastrophic can cause PTSD. 
And sometimes that's multiple incidents, but there's not just one distinct cause for PTSD. It could be any traumatic event. And certainly a tornado of these magnitudes qualifies. Exactly that. And, and um, I think back uh, several years ago here in Colorado, uh, especially in Colorado Springs, we had a number of wildfires that encroached into the city. It's what happens when we live on the edge of, of mountainous wilderness. And, uh, and the same thing happens, right? So wildfires, um, you know, of course, the hurricanes Absolutely. this past year in Houston. Earthquakes. Right. The floods throughout the mid- Midwest. Hurricanes like Katrina. Um, large, large mass, mass casualties on the highway, um, massacres. I'm, I'm a survivor of the Fort Hood massacre. And again, PTSD is rampant among the survivors and the wounded. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, and this goes to the idea of a, a shockingly traumatic event. And, and I often make the distinction for my clients is that you have the trauma in post-traumatic stress disorder, which is psychological trauma, but then uh, maybe compounded by the trauma in the traumatic brain injury, which is a physical trauma. As you said, there are many physical injuries. So this is these disasters can be physically traumatic, which is another uh, very um, maybe not well-known cause of PTSD is uh, chronic medical conditions is is people really even think that less so this idea of anything that is that is threatening death or this this serious deprivation can really cause someone to have a traumatic stress reaction and if untreated can develop into the more long-term condition absolutely correct i couldn't agree with you more that is a fact so oftentimes in, in the combat theater, for instance, a traumatic brain injury occurred in, in, a, tra- in any, a psychologically traumatizing event. And, and there you have it. You're going to have both. Right. I mean, and, and again, with, uh, with the military, of course, things are more complicated than that. Um, but that could happen in uh, then, then an automobile, automobile accident. But you can have a psychologically traumatic event in an automobile Beal accident and a physically traumatic event, uh, and the same thing in a hurricane or an earthquake in, in these physical injuries. But combat or, or military PTSD takes on a different level. Um, when, for example, you said you're a survivor of the Fort Hood shooting, the, the first one, I believe, with, um, uh, that happened in their yeah. uh, soldier readiness processing, um, which is there's a level of betrayal there. There's a level of, um, you know, I didn't expect this to happen, you know, by someone who was in the military. Um, military related or combat related PTSD is, is a little bit more complicated than, and, and I don't want to, you know, minimize it, but sort of run of the mill PTSD. Correct. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, the exposure to to things that are that no don't compare to anything else that we live with in the course of our day to day living in in our, at at home in the United States is very different from what you experience in the wartime theater. It, it's it's so extreme it it defies description unless you've been there. Right. I mean, and, and so, and that's, uh, yeah, that's one of the things that, um, when we're helping, um, individuals and as clinicians helping with individuals, is there a difference, um, in working with, uh, survivors of, say, natural disaster trauma versus, um, you know, um, individually perpetrated trauma, either vehicle accidents or, or, or mass shootings or things? 
Well, there, 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 there is in a couple of ways. One is if you couple that with physical injuries in, in a, in a, a devastating car accident, um, you may lose a loved one in the accident. You, you may suffer tremendous impairments and physical injuries that are lifelong and life as you know, it is, is over completely after, after that. There's no going back with those types of, of injuries and, and, and losses and the people that you love are no longer there with you or your limbs and, and your ability to, to use your body as you normally do is, is gone forever. Um, with a, a tornado, a hurricane, flood, anything like that, the peaceful sanctuary, sanctuary that you call home is gone. So you have no place to return to. Most of us coming back from the combat theater, not all, there's thousands and thousands of homeless veterans have a place to lay their head at night. And once that's gone, your whole firm foundation has been ripped out from under you. So that in it, in and of itself is traumatizing. You know, that's a, that's a great point. And, and uh, not having done a lot of disaster related mental health, I, I hadn't considered that, but of course we're, we're talking about um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I've got a colleague who's a marriage and family therapist who says, uh, it's very hard to talk about your inner child when you don't know where you're sleeping tonight. Um, and, and having yeah, exactly. it, right. And, and yeah. having it ripped away that unexpectedly. And, and you said, even in a vehicle accident, yes, my, my relationships have changed and perhaps my physicality has changed, but this is even the, the basic safety of, of life necessity has been put in jeopardy by some of these natural disasters. Very, very much so. Yes. Yes, that is, that's a fact. So just learning to navigate life and to find, to find a new home, to, to, to try to recapture any semblance of normalcy is a long time in coming. And it may take weeks or months or, or even years to, to get back on some kind of firm footing. Right. And there's this, this need to, um, sort of rely on those things in our lives, um, for sources of strength. Say again, at, at a automobile accident, um, but I, I still have my house or I still have my community, you know, and these things like that. Um, but then those things, I mean, many times again, we all often, you know, take it for granted, perhaps. Um, but when we don't have those necessary stabilizing conditions, that can make the trauma worse. Absolutely, yes. And I've witnessed that up close and personal in the last, in the last week. Right. Um, and fortunately, there are there are many organizations that are helping people just to begin the process of getting back on their feet. But uh, again, where's FEMA when you need them? So. Well, and that's true, but I also think about it. I've I've talked to um, well, so Dr. Shauna Springer from the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. Um, there's this idea of there's a lot of support for individuals at at a point of crisis or immediately post crisis, uh, but for many people, this tragedy continues on for years and years, and that support is not indefinite. Um, I've talked the same thing. Yes with chaplains who will follow up with someone that they, they cert, you know, uh, coach through a, uh, um, a loss several years later. And they're like, nobody has talked to me about this in, in six, eight, 10 months that really the long-term support for survivors of these traumas, um, is 
as necessary, if not more so than the immediate support. Yes. And it's, it's like a funeral. Once the funeral's over and, and the burial has come to a conclusion, everybody runs home and they forget about the survivors of the person who's been lost. And it doesn't stop at the end of the funeral. It doesn't stop at the end of the day or the week or, or the month. It's the hardships continue for the long term. So it, this is a very tough one. Absolutely. And uh, these, these organizations have, uh, don't have unlimited funds, so accessing what you need is not always going to take place once all the organizations have gone away. Right. And, and so and there's this idea of the sustained need. And actually what this is putting me in mind of, I had seen an article uh, that you wrote back in November um, with um, – uh, with Randy Jensen uh, talking about how um, suicide prevention, most military suicide prevention misses the boat on, on sort of that other need. One of the other needs we're looking at Maslow's hierarchy, that need for connectedness, that need for, um, for, for individual support um, within our community um, that, that that is as much a protective factor for uh, suicide prevention um, and, and it's it, to me, this conversation is sort of striking the same thing is that, yeah, we can get you the resources right away. Um, but that's sort of like just that cr immediate crisis intervention. But there's a long need many years even after um, uh, after something comes up for veterans to be supported in their community. And everybody goes away or it certainly feels that way for most. Very true. That's a fact. Um, and in terms of um, the, the lack of belongingness to the community that you were once a part of or the, the neighbors that, that sustained you during rough times, that closeness, that very belongingness turns to despair because it, it evaporates. Right. And so I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you had a, a very long and distinguished career um, in the military. And then there was a point like me where there was the day that you said, you know, this is the last time that I'm going to be wearing this uniform. Uh, for me, it was only um, in, not even five years ago and it still seems like a long time. Um, and, and then you, you reengaged. You said, I, I can't stay out of uniform. How was that transition from retirement for you in that period when you weren't in the military? It was a crushing blow. I, I felt like I had died. Um, I didn't want to retire. I had put in my packet to extend. And at that time, um, I was the chief psychologist for the Army Reserve. So I thought, surely um, they'll give me another year or two because I didn't feel that my mission was complete. No, they did not extend me. So due to the drawdown back in 2013, um, really, I felt like my entire life had been pulled out from under me. Um, my, most of my closest relationships are, are my Army buddies. Um, fortunately, and I didn't know about this at the time, the uh, Ohio Military Reserve, which is the unpaid branch of the Ohio National Guard, recruited me, and it, it really has brought me back to life. <laughs> Another great blessing. So, in fact, uh, my my unit was, was out there helping families in the Brookville, Ohio area clean up debris and try to find anything that they could to salvage this weekend. 
so we were given permission to do that or volunteer for the Red Cross. So our, our commander was very generous in allowing that because he was very, very aware of, of the acute need to provide any kind of services that we could. And, you know, that's how it is in the military. You bond together and you take care of your brothers and sisters. You know, and, and you bring up a, a great point, Kathy, is the idea of we talk about this um, disaster-related traumatic stress reaction. Um, and and I was in the Army in 92 and, and, you know, served for, what was it, nine years before 9-11. And, um, you know, obviously – uh, before combat, that was the primary mission for most, for many of the National Guard and, and, and Army Reservists is to respond to, uh, natural disasters and things like that. Um, that, uh, on top of the fact that, you know, uh, these soldiers, I think I'd mentioned to you before we started talking, I've actually worked with some, uh, active duty service members when the 82nd was sent into Katrina that they were just devastated. They hadn't experienced the, um, the natural disaster, but they're devastated just by seeing the aftermath. And, and, and many, and this is in the, the veterans that I work with said there was a sense of helplessness. Like no matter what they did, it, it wasn't enough. Do, do you see that in the, the guardsmen and reservists you work with? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. When they come back from a mission like that, the sense of, of being powerless to, to prevent so much human suffering, it, is, it really takes a toll. And add to that the guilt that many of us were unaffected as far as our, our homes and our places of work were concerned. And, and you're dealing with people who have lost their jobs, they've lost their vehicles, they've lost all of their personal sentimental possessions, their homes, they've lost everything. You feel like you cannot do enough. To, to stop the magnitude of this suffering it's it's hard so you have to debrief you have to debrief those who are out there doing the debriefings too right and and it's even that idea of i go home at night and and i can't even rest comfortably because i know that there's hundreds if not thousands of people that i literally saw earlier that day that didn't have a place to rest. And so there's a level of, like you said, a guilt of not, not being affected and things like that. You know, I had Dr. Ed Tick on the show and, and, and he said something to me, um, that the military's job is not to, you know, attack and destroy, but is truly to preserve and protect. I mean, even when we were in combat, preserve and protect those around us or our base or our mission. Um, and even more so the desire to preserve and protect your community. Um, and, and how hard it can be when that desire to preserve and protect isn't fulfilled because it's just out of your hands. You can't stop a tornado or a hurricane. That's right. That's, that's, well, it's, it's just like the survivor guilt that, that's military personnel experience when their buddies are wounded, maimed and, and, and killed and they survived. Why me? And that's a very, very real thing. Hard to pull away from that. It's the same guilt you feel when you go out there and deal with these tornado victims. So right. sometimes enough is never enough. And, and, and this is, and again, um, as you mentioned your experiences, um, you know, um, uh, I've worked with survivors of, you know, say the wildfires here and really veterans that had volunteered um, to go serve in the wildfires. And, and again, as you'd mentioned, a large number of, um, veterans go serve in the first responder community, as you mentioned, um, PTSD is indiscriminate. 
um, and, and we don't know where one ends and the other begins. We're having this national conversation around veteran mental health, hence this podcast and the VA and everything else, but we're not having a national conversation around the impact of trauma. Um, like you said, mass shootings. We just recently, again, uh, several months ago, by the time this airs, uh, we had another school shooting here, um, just several miles from Columbine, um, in, uh, um, in Littleton, uh, here in Colorado. And so there's this idea of there's, there's still so much trauma and PTSD just isn't a veteran thing. Um, we just have another layer on top of it. Yes. So very true. Yes, absolutely. Um, the victims of, of any number of, of these national disasters is, is the, there's so many thousands of people that don't even realize hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people probably that don't realize that these natural disasters take the same toll as combat or mass shootings. The, the end result is the same. It's not just combat. That's the causative factor. And I don't wonder if that's not an opportunity for um, those of us who have experienced, right? You know, they, they say, you know, those of us that saw the elephant, but, but there's the, the idea of those who have been able to, and not necessarily even have the clinical experience, like, like definitely you much more even than I do. Um, but, but just having that lived experience that there's not an opportunity for veterans to go into their community and help because they've been survivors of trauma and even grown after this trauma um, to help their communities, not just in a physical way of, you know, sandbags and, and cutting down trees, but, but also in a very healing psychological way. Yes. Yes. You know, it, it, oh gosh, this is about 47 or 48 years ago. One of my, and this is, this is what makes military people tick. tick. Um, I received a, an embroidered, cloth and said on it, be ashamed to die until you have done something for humanity. And I think that's, that's a common thread that, that runs through military personnel. When, when you're out of the military, what else are you going to do that rises to that level uh, of satisfaction and reward or value, meaning, and purpose? No, that's uh, you're exactly right. I, um, like you, um, I anticipated this this void in my life, which is why I threw myself um, head on into working with veterans um, exclusively. We have a very large veteran population here in Colorado Springs. This idea of, and I've said it often, even on the show and, and with veterans that I work with, is I feel like I have, in some ways, more meaning and purpose in my life now um, than than I did in many times when I was in the military. Um, and, and like you, you said that there was, it was devastating. It was crushing to get out. And this was your entire life. Um, a friend of mine, a, a former co-host here, and, and he said he was an 18 Bravo Green Beret. And he said, the army told me that I could not be me anymore. I could no longer, I was no longer allowed to be who I was, which, which is a loss in identity. Um, and in, in your way and in my way, we've developed an, a, a response to that to build that into our lives after the military, but so many veterans don't, which I think is another um, contributor to the suicide epidemic we're experiencing. 
huge because your purpose in life and what gave you that identity has been taken from you, whether that's by choice or or by the fact that you, it was your end term of service date or, or for whatever reason. What comes next? Where's the off switch to fulfill that need to serve in some capacity? There isn't one. No, there isn't one, and and you know, arguably, um, there shouldn't be one, right? You know, uh, this idea of uh, be ashamed to die before you've contributed to humanity, um, almost the idea of uh, be ashamed to die before you've contributed to humanity one more time, and one more time again, and as often and as long as you can. There you go. I would like to see that embroidered. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, well, I, I do a lot of different th- things, but embroidery isn't one of them. Maybe I'll I'll find someone to to do that. <laughs> Kathy, this has been great. I know that you are super busy, and and unfortunately, um, as I often say with many of my guests, I think that we could talk literally all afternoon. Um, we but you're in, the, you're in the middle of some very important work. Um, if someone listening wanted to hear more about what you're doing, or or get some more information, how can they find you online? Uh, Very easily. Um, Through my website, which is www.drplatoni.com. Platoni is spelled Papa, Lima, Alpha, Tango, Oscar, November, India. The old habits die hard. Um, They (laughs) certainly do. Still... um, (laughs) Spell my name phonetically in my sleep. Uh, Kathy, this has been great. I will make sure that the link to your uh, website and uh, the books that you've co-authored are in the show notes. We have a lot of clinicians that listen to this show that want to learn more about. So they're interested um, in in working with veterans. And so I'm quite certain that uh, um, dense or not or heavy or not, uh, I think the books will definitely be a resource for people that are looking to learn more about military mental health. Thank you so very much for the honor and privilege of speaking with you and and being a part of your initiatives. I so greatly appreciate this. I do. I do, too. And thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Truly, it was an honor. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. As you can tell in this episode, Dr. Platoni is a dedicated and passionate advocate for mental health and wellness in post-military life. I highly suggest that you check out her website, which can be found in the show notes and all of the work that she's doing. One of the main themes that ran through our conversation was how traumatic stress reaction is not limited to just combat trauma. Likely as a result of her recent work on responding to natural disasters, it was probably very top of mind for her. I'm also appreciative of her description of how challenging it was to leave the military. I think it's helpful to hear the experiences of others to know that we're not alone in our difficulties. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST141. If you enjoyed the show, I ask that you subscribe to it on your podcast player of choice. That helps others find the show. I always value your feedback, so let me know how you're doing by providing an honest rating or review. I'd also like to let you know of a series of webinars that I'm providing for NADAC, the National Association for Addiction Professionals. I'm presenting a series of six webinars on service member, veteran, and military family mental health, 
There'll be live webinars presented over the remainder of 2019, and after they're complete, they'll be available to watch on demand. To see more about the series, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash NADAC to check them out. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should reach out to talk to somebody, then please do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Until next time, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that try to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.